0: 海里 do you feel I, it? Do you feel, feel it? What, Jane? Feel the what, James? Feel what? feel to the air. Crisp, it's all, air. I I you, y'all. Fall and me, I don't know it about you, but fault to me always feels like a rebirth. A time, feels reset, like a, a time to reset, realign, and my body. So I'm thrilled, discovered Chroma so I'm thrilled that we've discovered Chroma
1: Wellness. Yes. Chroma, Chroma oh. Wellness is a premium yes. functional health and superfood company that offers adaptogen super lattes that offers adaptogen plant-based smoothie blends, superfood snacks, and smoothie blends, as well snack their their hero, hero product teams, their 5 as well as well day as their whole hero body product. reset which is a revolutionizing body. Way reset. Reset. People think about cleansing evolutionizing and revolutionizing way. People so I ordered the five-day reset. And, and I swooned young. when I the box
0: arrived. It's reset just. I lifted the lid and no the box circular cake. display it's of gorgeous Rainbow cued packets, the snack rainbow cute made for me and lunch the go. dinner. It's truly an all-in-one kit too. It even came with a frother and a thermos. It's truly an all-in-one kit. It even
1: came with a a thermos. You can buy these fabulous products and one day or five and you can or buy, these purchase the products individually, individually to be enjoyed or on your own, own schedule, or purchase the Either products individually to be enjoyed on your own schedule. As medicine. Either, Either way, and that Mother nature, nature is our greatest, greatest resource and to naturally, naturally fuel our and mind and that Mother body Nature and soul. is our greatest resource Want to check out their line of nutrient-dense, ethically
0: sourced and functional soul. foods and beverages yourself? Head on over to ChromaWellness.com. That's K R O M A wellness. com. Head on over to chromawellness.com, that's K-R-O-M-A wellness.com, and use the code gram 20 for 20% off at checkout.
2: The telltale sign of a child who may not be able to verbalize that they're struggling or internalizing some of that sense of not being good enough is going to be any kind of, you know, acting out behavior where there's school avoidance or overt episodes of tearfulness or distress that don't seem provoked.
0: Welcome back to an all-new season of Off the Gram, the show where we bring you straight into the trenches with us to help you live your best life, channel your inner girl boss, and navigate the ever-changing landscapes of wellness and social media. Hey, Heidi.
1: Hey, team. All right, school is officially back in session. And it ain't so. I know, I, I know, it. I know. Before we were started recording, everybody, we were talking about how we have too many dates in our brain, and I'm sure you do too. Because <laughs> that is, by definition, back to school, I think. Yeah. But in addition to moms having way too much on their plate right now, one more thing that we might want to think about is keeping our kiddos emotionally healthy and safe, Right. Dr. Pete Loper Jr. is a triple board certified physician, educator, and executive coach dedicated to mental health and wellness advocacy. He is the medical director and Psychiatry Residency Program Director at Tri-County Commission on Alcohol and Drug Abuse. He's also an assistant professor at the University of South Carolina School of Medicine, and he is the founder and principal of Pursuit Executive Coaching. Dr. Loper is also an executive leadership coach for the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. A husband and father to four as well, Dr. Loper is in a league of his own, having completed a full residency in pediatrics, followed by a second residency in psychiatry and a fellowship in child and adolescent psychiatry. That blew my mind,
0: by the way. Right? I know. blowing.
1: So it's like, I can't think of anyone more uniquely qualified to speak about keeping our children's emotional well-beings intact as this new school year gets underway.
0: Listen to this show if you want to know how to best support your child's mental health, you're interested in learning signs that a child's mental well-being could use some attention, You're concerned about the emotional well being of your child as they embark on a new school year and would like the advice of a uniquely qualified doctor.
1: Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Looper. We are so excited to have you with us today.
2: Well, thank you so much for having me.
1: Thank you so much for being here. Okay, so we have a lot to cover in this too short time for what we need to cover. So I wanted to start off by talking about mental health in general, because when I was reading through all of your stuff that's available online, I saw that you pose an opinion that's contrary to everything I have read and learned in my lifetime. You say that a common misconception about mental health is that mental illness is due to a chemical imbalance in the brain, but I've been told this repeatedly my whole life. So can you please clarify for all of us, because I'm pretty sure everyone thinks it's a chemical imbalance in the brain.
2: Yeah. So I got to say, I'm so excited that you brought that up to start with. And this is not a thought that's unique to me. And it's not just simply my opinion. I think that if we look at the best data about what mental illness is, and we look at the tracking or sequencing of how we started to appreciate and conceptualize mental illness diagnostically, uh, you know, starting way back at, you know, in in the early 1900s, we can see it evolve where in the 80s, 1980s, there started to become more of a biological tilt or a biological emphasis for the idea of what causes mental illness. This idea is just simply neurotransmitters and you have this chemical imbalance in the brain. Um, and so uh, but we know for the best data that exists, that that is a gross oversimplification of what mental illness really is and what causes mental health problems. And so that's a really important t- point to note. I'd also say that there, it's been publicized to a degree. There are certain books out there, Johan Hari is uh, an ethnographic researcher who's written a beautiful book um, that really, really whittles it down uh, and drives home this point that mental illness is, is not a chemical imbalance in the brain.
1: So what is it?
2: So that's a great question. And I think that that is such a powerful question. It's a question that we really need to be asking collectively as a culture and society, because we see this huge uptick in mental health problems. But then the question becomes, what is that all about? And so if we look at you know, uh, a mental health issue, it is not simply a chemical imbalance in the brain. It's typically a human being with unmet needs, right? And and if you think about it, we lived in a very specific way for 99.99% of our existence here on earth as a species until the agricultural revolution, which is 12 to 15,000 years ago, like a millisecond ago in human history, right? And until that moment in time where we developed the capacity to farm at scale, sufficient to remove ourselves from Uh, family of origin embedded in community, intimately embedded in our physical, natural environment. We remove ourselves from that core construct of how we lived and how we evolved as a species. We build up civilization. And since that moment in time, that core construct of community that is vital to human health and well-being has slowly degraded. And as that community degrades, that fundamental human need of meaningful interpersonal interactions and every other fundamental human need that's a consequent result of those meaningful interpersonal interactions becomes compromised and threatened. And so that's a long-winded answer to your question, but at the most basic level, if we're looking at what is mental illness, it's simply human being with, it's a human being with unmet needs.
0: That makes a lot of sense. I mean, right, because we're seeing such an uptick in mental illness or mental unwellness. Not everybody is all of a sudden chemically imbalanced. It's just a lot of people disconnected, people dealing with trauma, people dealing probably with trauma of the last couple of years, lack of human connection, as we've all been kind of sequestered away. I can imagine there's a lot of things, right, that contribute to it. And that's talking about grownups. So let's talk about (laughs) kids for a minute, because I know that you specialize in really taking a look at children. And that's why we wanted to bring you here today. You know, for me today, the day that this is airing is Monday, August 28th. It's my kiddos first day of school. I know it's a lot of other moms, kiddos first day at school. And my older one is in second grade. So this is like pivotal year, pivotal time. Bullying is beginning, right? He's a little
1: boy. It's already started. And and has this, it really? Cause like, oh, as a, oh yeah. Jamie and I have kids. So my twins are Eight. Mason's turning eight, right? Yep. That's like next week. Yeah. Yeah. Mine are in third grade, the twins. So, I haven't experienced the bullying yet, and I, I'm curious if that's a girl-boy thing, but sorry, Jamie, continue. I just wanted I, to make you know sure what? we got I, that. I bet it is, although I have to imagine the cyberbullying, Heidi, is going to be worse for you later on,
0: whereas <laughs> course, like real-life yeah. bullying, this is anecdotal, obviously. I'm not a doctor, <laughs> but I can tell you right now, there's already boys picking on each other and who's cool and who's tougher and yada yada. So can we talk for a minute about IRL bullying? Like, I'd love to hear from you. In your opinion, what age does bullying typically start? And like, I don't know is there a general age or is it really kind of person to person or maybe school to school specific and is there anything a parent should look out for and maybe do to protect their child proactively
2: well again you know human beings are inherently social creatures we are who we are by virtue of our ability to relate to other people and that really is a crucial foundational fundamental human need so obviously bullying disrupts that it compromises that sense of belonging that's crucial to integrate into community and establish that sense of belonging that's vital for being a productive member of community and for mental health and well-being, right? But then also looking at it from a developmental standpoint, human beings are dynamic, kinetic creatures. From the time we're born to the time we die, we're in a constant state of developing. And so there are really important ingredients that are required for healthy human development. The first and foremost is meaningful interpersonal interactions. But secondly, you have to encounter challenge, adversity, distress, and explicitly failure in some cases. And so one of the ways in which I like to work with parents and with patients who are encountering that bullying is to really challenge the perception of that bullying as being something that uh, they are outsourcing their agency to and they're uh, being disempowered by the bullies to then redirecting their perspective to what can I control about this circumstance and how can I use this situation of, of noxious stimuli, so to speak, the bullying to support me in my healthy development when I'm embedded in the context of my healthy, meaningful, interpersonal interactions with my mom, my dad, and my other good friends who aren't bullying me.
0: Wait, so if I'm talking to a seven-year-old, eight-year-old, because I hear all of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah. makes perfect sense to me. Although I, as an adult, don't know if I would be able to have the perspective to step out of the hurt and do what you're suggesting, although it makes sense on paper. So now I'm talking to my seven, eight-year-old, right? What am I telling... Okay, so I'm like, focus on what you can control. What is the language you would use there?
2: Yeah, so first step is label your feelings, and one of the most important things that we can do, and again, one of the fundamental underpinnings that's really driving this, this uh, issue with mental health issues, is that somehow we've now pathologized normal human experiences and normal human feelings, and then we mislabel normal, crucial human emotions and feelings as being bad or negative, Right. So one of the most important things you can do in the context of bullying or any other kind of distress that your seven-year-old is experiencing is support them in verbalizing and identifying and verbalizing their feelings one of the best ways to do that is to say you know what i remember when i was your age i had somebody at school who was really picking on me a lot it made me feel really sad and it made me feel really lonely and then give them the space to engage you're modeling for them that idea of self-reflection modeling for them vulnerability you're modeling for them that the idea of being sad or feeling lonely or feeling upset is a normal human experience and it's to be engaged with in a healthy manner it's to be observed engaged with and and acknowledged
1: that makes me so sad (laughs) no no it's 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 just it's so heavy when you have little kids that you just want to protect i feel like Mm -hmm. but that's that's a great Thank you for giving us that example. I feel like that's going to be incredibly helpful to a lot of our listeners and to both Jamie and I. And,
2: and let me also say this, you know, that's not to minimize the value of advocating for your child. Right. Obviously, that's the first step. The first step is you're going to the teacher, you're going to the school administration, and you're making them aware of the issue. Yeah. The Another big step that a parent can take is support their child in better understanding what it's like to be their bully. Mm-hmm. And that can be very helpful to incorporate the teacher and the administration in supporting the child in doing that. Starting to generate hypotheses as to why this child feels like they need to be mean to me, what might be going on in their life, what might be going on in their existence that makes them feel like they need to make me feel bad about myself. And a seven-year-old is capable of doing that, right? The seven-year-old is capable of generating hypotheses about what might be going on with Johnny who's picking on them at school so that they can start that, that practice of empathetic understanding and then shifting their perspective of what that bullying actually means to them, the way they perceive it and the way they engage and appreciate it.
1: I love that. Yeah. That's super helpful. I feel like a ch- our each of our children could probably really use that and find that very helpful. I want to talk about cuz so there's more than bullying though when it comes to back to school, right? In terms of supporting our children's emotional wellness. I mean, Obviously bullying is a big one, but I feel like schools by their very nature are sort of set up to show kids that they're less than or smarter than, or, I mean, listen, I have twins. So there's nothing like same sex twins in the same grade to be like, compare, 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 but this one's doing this and this one's doing this and this one's here and this one's here and they see it. And, you know, even if they weren't twin sisters and because of the pandemic, they were in the same classroom for a long time, which was way harder even though schools try to be like, oh, you're an F reader and an N reader, or some schools have colors, the kids see the colors and they know that this color is more advanced than that color. You're not fooling anyone with colors or letters rather than saying advanced, not advanced. It's the same thing to children as far as I can tell from my kids. But so when it comes to that, I mean, obviously I have a very different situation than everybody else because I have two that are the same age at school at the same time, so they compare each other. But I imagine that if they weren't twins, each child would still see like, oh, these people are so, reading came so easily to those kids. Why do I have to have the special reading teacher? Why do I have to leave class and go to the special teacher? Like, why am I not getting the smiley faces on my math pages? That type of thing. So when kids are in grade school, how can we as parents sort of support them As this kind of thing comes home to us. And I guess like, are there red flags if your child isn't vocal about why they're upset? You know, like I said, I have this very unique situation because the twins are very vocal about like, but mommy, why is Priscilla better than me at reading? And I, it's so hard for me and it's, she's so good at it. And, you know, other kids might not say those things to their parents. So as a parent, is there something you're looking for to know that your kid is struggling if the teacher isn't telling you yet, or even if they've told you to know that they're emotionally struggling and how do we help?
2: Yeah, so I'll start with the the last question first. So healthy human development throughout an, an individual's lifespan, whether you're a young child or an adult is defined by engagement. It's approach and exploration that outpaces with consistency, avoidance, withdrawal, acting out. So it's getting up, it's getting dressed, it's getting your breakfast, it's getting in the car, it's going to school, and it's being actively engaged in school. It's coming home, pulling out your homework, you know, and doing your homework and engaging in those processes, right? So that's healthy human development. Maldevelopment or unhealthy human development is defined by avoidance, withdrawal, or acting out. So the telltale sign of a child who may not be able to verbalize that they're struggling or internalizing some of that sense of not being good enough is going to be any kind of you know, acting out behavior where there's school avoidance, where they get to school and they're having conflict with their peers at school or having conflicts with teachers, Uh, any kind of avoidance withdrawal behavior where they don't want to go to school, they don't wanna engage in the schoolwork in the classroom setting. Or overt episodes of tearfulness or distress that don't seem provoked, right? So those would be some some common signs of avoidance withdrawal behaviors, right? Mm-hmm. And that's when you that that's a red flag. Really? Right? That's the Yeah, I'm yeah, like, oh, yeah. I
1: know that one. <laughs>
2: so, so that's the messenger. And what's so important for parents to understand is that is a messenger. And oftentimes we try to shoot down that messenger to and, and we create this misconception that 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 those behaviors are the problem. No, those behaviors are a downstream symptom indicator that's the messenger or the harbinger of an underlying phenomenon that needs to be addressed. And so when you see those types of behaviors um, and and those types of, of, of situations, it's very important. That's when you know, hey, let's listen now to what that behavior is telling us, and then use that behavior in terms of frequency and consistency as it continues to, it does it persist? Does it begin to resolve? And that really informs whether the intervention that you've uh, committed to is, is working. But then there's something really, really important to understand about that developmental age and stage. So Heidi, remind me again, your kids' ages, their age.
1: The twins are eight and yes. my son is five. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. So so your son is, is navigating what is just moving. Again, everybody's in a perpetual state of development. So the, there are these psychosocial developmental stages, psychobabble terms. We don't have to get into the language, but I'll, I'll reference it just to create some scaffolding for framing. So initiative versus guilt is this moment in time where psychosocially, the developing human being is developing their sense of purpose. That's from about two years of age, three years of age, up until six or seven, particularly for a boy. There's not a clean break in these stages, right? But then once you get into the school age uh, range, so eight for sure, you've now navigated into this moment in time in your psychosocial development where you're developing your internal experience, where it's called industry versus inferiority. And it's all about peer, peer comparisons. It's I'm really good at at, I'm really bad at at reading and Johnny is really good at reading. And what does that mean about me? Now, here's the catch. okay? so this is a natural, organic process that every single one of us goes through at at this moment in time in our psychosocial development. It's actually the moment in time where we uh, develop our overall sense of competency and thereby belonging within community as a whole. And so unfortunately within our sociocultural construct that demands uh, survival of the fittest, which is a, a flawed understanding of how human development occurs, and within that socially prescribed perfectionism that we're all fighting, right? Even us as adults, we fight the socially prescribed perfectionism. Now we've totally skewed and destroyed this fundamental developmental stage where really what it should be is, Johnny's really good at reading, I'm really good at math. I recognize that Johnny's really good at reading. And so in homework club, Or in in English class, I go sit next to Johnny and Johnny helps me read, helps me identify the noun in the sentence and the verb in the sentence. Johnny recognizes uh, reciprocally that I'm really good at math. And Johnny comes and sits next to me when we're in math class or when we're in a homework club or whatever, and I support Johnny in doing his math work. You know, addition and subtraction. So my sense of belonging, my sense of competency, and thereby belonging within community as a whole, is as much informed by what I'm not good at as it is at what I am good at. Because if I'm good at everything, who the heck needs Johnny? And if Johnny's good at everything, why does Johnny need me? And we've totally skewed that. It's become very perverted in terms of how we support our children in navigating that very fundamental and foundational developmental stage where they establish establish that sense of, I belong in community, as much informed by what I'm really good at as what I'm not as good at. And that's why I need to be present, right? For others in community who are not as good at what I am. And that's why others, I need others to be present for me to help support me in what I'm not good at. That establishes that reciprocity and that core construct of belonging that's required to navigate to the next step, psychosocial development, where you fully integrate into community, you establish a sense of fidelity or loyalty or commitment to the community as a whole. I am going to be a productive, committed member of this community. I'm gonna support other people and they're reciprocally going to support me. So, is this something that we suggest that the kids do, or we help them, we help put
0: them together in groups, or we just expect that that's something that they'll intuit?
2: So, they intuitively are going to engage in the peer peer comparisons. Where we go wrong oftentimes is we re- reinforce their deficiencies and we don't acknowledge with consistency what they're really good at. So, mm-hmm. one of the best strategies to do if your child is coming in and saying, Why is Johnny so good at reading? Well, tell me some things that you're good at. And it may be as simple as coloring between the lines, mm-hmm. but you'll take it, right? It's anything that they identify that they are good at doing. And if they can't identify they're good at, some, there's something that they're good at doing, right? What you can do then is a, what makes you feel good? What do you enjoy doing, right? And then you go there. So what you're doing is you're totally redirecting them back away from the scarcity that I'm not good enough, right? Back to the abundance. Look at all the good things that you have. Look at all the things that you enjoy doing. Look at all the things that you're good at. And it's that abundance scarcity paradox, that industry versus inferiority, that's where we recognize the abundance of potential, not just within ourselves, but within everybody else that we're interacting with. The scarcity is that somehow I'm not good enough and I don't fit in. The socially prescribed perfectionism that we're all very familiar with, it reinforces the scarcity aspect of that abundance mm-hmm. uh, scarcity paradox, and it reinforces this consistency and feeling never good enough, and thereby our sense of belonging and community, not belonging in community. Man, that's smart. Can Mm -hmm. I be one of your four kids? You're smart. (laughs) Good ideas, doctor.
0: (laughs) While we're while we're trying to unearth unanswerable questions, (laughs) let's talk about screen time (laughs) because it is such an issue in my house. And I got to be honest. There's moments, you know, people joke it's the best babysitter around. There are moments when I go and I look at what my kids are looking at on the screen, and one of my kids is just obsessed with engineering and all things STEM and coding, and I'm like. Do you, brother? Like, you know what I mean? That looks cool. I don't know how to build a piston and a steam engine train, and you're looking it up. So, you know, whatever, gold star. But like, we all hear, obviously, the mental health issues associated with social media. So I'd love to hear from you, your opinion. Are there mental health issues associated with screen time in general? And is it the cause of the spike in the ADHD diagnosis?
2: That's a great question. There's data to support the idea that screen time and specific types of screen time can promote inattention and difficulty in executive functioning. So now, Is screen time responsible for quote-unquote ADHD? Well, in order to answer that question, we need to better unpack what is ADHD, because when we're looking at what ADHD is, it's a series of these downstream symptom indicators that co-cluster together, right? Inattentiveness, difficulty with task initiation, difficulty staying on task, difficulty with task completion. If you have the hyperactive type, you can't sit still. It's the child who's always up out of their seat, impulsivity, right? And you have that list. But the bottom line is ADHD isn't really a thing. It's, It's the downstream symptom indicators of the underlying phenomenon. And so for some kids, perhaps the reason that they're exhibiting these downstream symptom indicators that we describe semantically as ADHD is because of excess street screen time, and specifically screen time where there's rapid shifts in the screen sequencing. So you know, there's data that, for instance, not to call out this show, but SpongeBob SquarePants has a very rapid frame shift.
1: And wow. there's data
2: that supports the idea that kids who are exposed to SpongeBob SquarePants with that frame shift going so quickly are more prone to develop those downstream symptom indicators that might be consistent or semantically uh, defined as ADHD. Uh, but there's lots of other reasons. And obviously those downstream symptom indicators, it's multifactorial because we're highly complex dynamic kinetic creatures. Now back to the idea of screen time and mental health issues though, the data is pretty explicit that screen time and especially social media use in adolescents, particularly in adolescent girls is associated with negative feelings, negative stuff image, um compromised self-worth and then also there's a correlation with screen time and, and suicidal ideation in adolescents we have to acknowledge that information that data but again i think that's kind of the downstream problem right symptom indicator of the underlying phenomenon where if you look at the way that screens are designed the majority of the kids who are engaging with screens are using it for social media now if you're involved in stem and you're really into tech Heck, yeah, that's awesome. You know, support your child's approach and exploration in that space. If they have a a vested interest and a passion for it, they have an intrinsic motivation. That is beautiful. But the majority of the kids that are using screens are using social media. And the way that I like to describe social media to parents, I mean, think about like if, you know, 20,000 years ago, you know, we're embedded in family of origin in in our community, in our natural physical environment, right? Civilization doesn't exist at this point in time. And my survival is contingent upon that community. And I contribute to that community in a meaningful way to ensure the survival, collective survival of us as an organism, you know, that community. Now, what happens if an individual just leaves, says, I'm out of here, forget it, I'm leaving community? What happens to that individual? Well, inevitably, they're going to, they're very likely to succumb to predation, right? They're going to get eaten by a bear or a saber-toothed tiger or a pack of wolves. Metaphorically, we've created this similar dynamic for our kids in that they're leaving the realm of reality and meaningful interpersonal interactions, real time, face to face. And they're spending hours a day wandering in isolation in this virtual wilderness that is social media. Mm. And because we're human, we're succumbing to predation. Unfortunately, in this virtual wilderness, it's not saber two tigers and bears, right? It's a different type of predation. It's socially prescribed perfectionism, it's cyberbullying, sexual exploitation, mm. you know, blackmail. Um, these are all the things that we're seeing with consistency that are associated with social media use. So social media isn't necessarily the issue. It's the fact that it really hasn't been designed in a manner to augment our humanity and it actually is now removing our kids and then ourselves as parents, right? Because we're just as guilty as sitting there scrolling through. Sure. <laughs> you know, TikTok mm-hmm. or whatever the case may okay. be. There's only 24 hours in the day. Again, the rate limiting step to healthy human development is meaningful interpersonal interaction. You're at work through the course of the day, your kids are at school. You only have that very very limited period of time to be together. Face to face and interact in person, and now so much of that time has been compromised by screens. Um, so there's even less of it, and so I think that's the mechanism by which screens are contributing to the uptick overall in mental health issues. If that if that makes sense. It, it
1: totally sure does. makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> <It's> too <laughs> much sense. sense. Yeah, seriously. So okay, we get it. Screen time not great because <laughs> you're not having interpersonal relationships. Yeah. So. When we are with our children in the very small amount of time per day that we get to see them, what are some good activities as parents that we can do with our children that can support their mental well-being?
2: Yeah, so, so there's a number of them. The place that I always love to start is, is with play. And so play is so important at any age, right? We don't stop playing because we get old. We get old because we stop playing. So play is crucial. And think about the, the experiences that you have with, with your children engaged in play. You know, the best play is going to be outdoors. It's going to be, it's going to involve physical activity and creativity and all those different components that are are going to be very enriching for the experience. But at the end of the day, if you, if you come home and you play a video game with your kid, Mario Kart or whatever the the, the case may be, that still counts, right? There's still the opportunity to engage with your child in an activity where there's some collective and some interaction. So play is huge. Um, For the little ones, get down on your knees and hands and lose your, your, be vulnerable Lose, lose your sense of I'm an adult and um, I don't do this anymore, and be a kid and give yourself permission to do that. It's super important, not just for your child, but for for you as an adult as well.
0: Ugh, so beautiful. Yeah. I got to be honest, my husband's better at that than I am. So thank you for the reminder. You know, these are the. I mean, this is airing on Monday, but just for full transparency to the audience, we're recording this on Wednesday of the week prior. So that means I have a couple days left of summer, right? <laughs> like. How are you going to spend it? How are you going to spend those minutes? And actually, I will say this. We did schedule a family staycation in our backyard this weekend. We got tents. We got a projector. We got a little movie screen for our backyard. We're doing a canoe thing. And I'm really glad that we did that, especially hearing you talk, because we all made an agreement, like phones down. And now I'm doubly glad because my kids need that.
2: Wow. So let's add that to the list, a staycation. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. All those different activities. Yeah. That's absolutely wonderful.
0: I want to, I mean, this was such a wonderful, lighthearted question and answer that I hate to kind of end it with one more question. That's a little bit heavier, but I can't, I can't overlook it because of the times we are living in. When Heidi and I were in grade school, we had fire drills. Now our kids are having lockdown drills. I mean, last year in my own school district here, my kids had to stay home for two days because there had been a threat from a student that he was going to come into the school with, a firearm. And it terrified me. I mean, my children are, you know, seven and, and four. The fact that any of us should even be having to think about this is insane. But, you know, I don't even know how much they understand about all that or what they do see on TV. So how are you seeing that this is affecting the emotional well-being of children today? Or how should we be talking to them about it in a productive way? How early
2: is, is too early? So that's a great question. And sometimes it's happening organically because some school systems are actually doing drills. And for me personally, I'm, I'm pretty opposed to those types of drills where there's an active shooter drill and you have flashing lights and noise and things like that. You can imagine that that's very prescriptive and it can very much reinforce a sense of insecurity for that child in that school setting, especially for the little ones who don't quite understand what's going on. But the best thing to do is, is You do not want your kids watching the news, right? Mm. Because when they're watching the news, it creates a false perception of insecurity. The bottom line is that these events are occurring. They're occurring with more frequency, but they are still relatively rare. And I think the best way to engage with your child about it is when the topic comes up, or if you wish to broach the topic preemptively, which is always a good idea. Just say, you know, there are some people in the world who do bad things. And there are some people in the world who like to be mean to other people and that's just the reality of the world. And sometimes those bad people might want to hurt people at your school and engage with them, lay it out there for them, and then allow them to ask questions, right? To engage with that idea and to be able to meaning make of their own accord sufficient to be comfortable with that concept. Now, again, you run the risk of being prescriptive. If if there's a situation where your school isn't engaging in active shooter drills and you you feel confident that they're in a safe space, Perhaps you don't have to have that conversation and perhaps you know there's something to be said for not uh, prescribing that, that potential to them and letting them just be free to be kids and enjoy their school experience. But if the topic comes up, it's not something to avoid. It's something to engage, It provide that appropriate education that's anchored in the developmental age and stage and appropriate for them, and then allow them to ask the questions required for them to meaning make and give honest, direct answers.
0: Thank you for that. Look, I mean, I think Heidi and I both left New York City to be in safe places. I couldn't live in like a, I'm doing air quotes, safer place. I live like in the middle of horses and and cornfields. I don't think there's anywhere these days where these things don't come up. And what I, like, for instance, for me, I didn't want him to hear it from his friends because I don't know how other parents are going to deal with these things coming up. So I we tried to have the conversation proactively, but it's so hard to know what to say. So thank you, thank you for that. I think you're right, it's just, at a certain point you gotta be a little honest and then let them ask
1: the important questions they have on their minds. Yeah, and I think for me, what would it be helpful? I mean, what comes up for me when you guys are talking about that is, I just want my kid, more, we do have these drills at our schools and we do live in an unbelievably safe neighborhood, knock on wood, which is why we moved here from Manhattan. but. The thing that's most important to me is that my kids listen to the teachers and understand that the teachers are the people that are meant to keep them safe with these drills and in these crazy situations. Is there any way to say that? Like if you don't want to, for example, say like some people shoot up schools, you know, whatever the wording is, could you say, you know, could you have a serious sit down with your young child and say, you know, should something happen, something crazy happen at your school and alarms go off and, there's yelling or crazy things happening, the most important thing is that you listen to your teacher and do what they say. Like, is there something like that?
2: Yes, absolutely. And I think that's spot on. You know, if if the school isn't engaging in the active shooter drills, you're not having to prepare your child for an active shooter drill to, and then educate them why the active shooter drill is going on, less is best, and best in many ways. And so just whittling it down to the most important component of that experience. If there's an emergency at school, then the most crucial thing that all you have to Do is listen to what your teacher says. Just listen to your teacher. and That's perfect. I think that's spot on.
0: Okay. Dave in the world. One kid, (laughs) mom at a time. Doctor, (laughs) thank you so much. Well, we always have one additional segment and it is called
1: Karma Call. And then I hand it to Heidi. (laughs) Thanks for singing for me, Jamie. All right. I have explained to all of our listeners and to our amazing guests, you, that karma is the Sanskrit word for action. So we ask all of our incredible, inspiring, knowledge-filled guests, what is one small, actionable item that our listeners could try out for a short period of time, call it like two weeks, that would yield a big result? So small action, big results.
2: Meditate. So, and and I'm serious. So that, that like, be comfortable with being in a quiet place and become comfortable with uh being with yourself. Begin the work of recognizing that your thoughts, you are separate from your thoughts and that you are actually separate from your mind. You're able to observe those thoughts. Become comfortable with acknowledging your internal experience without judgment and acknowledging that every feeling that you have is a value and it has meaning and it's not appropriate to ignore those feelings. And then the most important thing about the meditation in my mind is I just really believe it's very empowering because the momentum nowadays, especially when it comes to mental health issues, is to outsource your agency and empowerment to someone else in many different ways this is this occurs right it's this idea of redirecting the fact that it may not be your fault you're feeling a certain way it may not be your fault that bad things have happened to you but it certainly can be your responsibility you can be response able and one of the best ways to start is to just simply find your quiet quiet place and sit quietly with yourself with your eyes closed focusing on your breathing and engage in that process of meditation
0: Oh, so important, so powerful. Thank you so much. Where can our listeners find you on the gram and anywhere else you want to send them?
2: So I'm not on the gram. Maybe I should be on the gram. I don't know. But um,
1: <laughs> I think Instagram so, could use a voice of reason.
2: <laughs> uh, well, I'll, t- I'll take that to heart. I, I gotta figure out how to use it, but. Uh, <laughs> So I am on LinkedIn. And so you can find me on LinkedIn just by Googling my name. It's uh, Pete Loper uh, Jr. And then I also have my website. It's www.pete-loper, all one name com. There's con- a way to contact me on that website or you know my email is, is pursuit at peteloper.com. So the name, the word pursuit at peteloper.com. But that information is available on my website for anybody who'd like to reach out. And I'm more than willing to engage with anybody who may have uh, further questions for sure.
0: You're absolutely amazing, doctor. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you, everybody at home, for tuning in today. Hey, don't forget to follow us on the gram. We are off the gram podcast over there. And don't forget to subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. We'll see you next time.